And now I have a, a literal legend with me here on <laughs> Miami Mic'd Up. I knew I'd get a laugh out of him immediately by saying that one. Tommy Hutton, uh, the voice of, of Marlins baseball for me growing up, for so many of you, and now back in the booth with the Miami Marlins on Bally Sports. Tommy Hutton, thank you so much for, for taking the time, first of all, to join me today here on Miami Mic'd Up. Hey, uh, Jeremy, first of all, I'm probably not a legend in my own home. <laughs> but uh, hey, I, I appreciate the uh, the time to come on, and uh, my pleasure, uh, pl- pleasure talking to you. We'll have fun. Of course, yeah, we will. And uh, you know, I, I already played the audio before this for the folks of you sort of uh, mentioning on the broadcast. Hey, I got to get on there. So uh, I knew, <laughs> I knew, I knew that I had to reach out uh, and make this happen. And obviously, have been wanting this conversation to happen for a long time. So I'm very excited. Did uh, I but- really guilt you? Did I guilt you into oh, this? Oh. You didn't guilt me into doing it. It was something that already wanted to happen. But the guilt that washed over me when I was watching that broadcast live and you said, hey, I've been telling Jeremy I want to be on there. I oh, my (laughs) goodness, Tommy, I was like you you wouldn't even believe the 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 fear that washed over me in in a fun way, in a fun way. I knew it was it was all in jest. Uh, Before we get into any of the baseball stuff, I'll start you here. What is something outside of the workplace that has recently brought you joy? Oh, well, that's that's an easy, easy question. My uh, my three granddaughters uh, and I'm I'm very fortunate because I, I know a lot of guys. I I actually play golf with a lot of guys who who have grandchildren. But but a lot of them live in other areas up north, yeah. uh, out west. Uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, the two of them live in in Jupiter and one lives in Palm beach Gardens, So we get an opportunity. We we've kind of made a commitment on Thursdays <laughs> that uh, we watch, watch uh, the grandchildren. So we have all three girls, uh, usually the two older ones after they get out of school. And so to me, that brings the most, most joy when I see them. And when I see the baby now, when she holds her arms out, when I come in the room, just, it, you can't you can't say enough how much joy that brings. It could make me cry. I could sit here and cry <laughs> on this right now. How how old are the grandkids? Uh, the oldest is seven. Uh, then there's a five year old. We have Layla is seven. Lane is five, and Palmer just turned eleven months. Those are super cool names. Those yeah. are all really cool names. That, and what <laughs> what a fun mix of ages. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying that uh, when when you're taking the time away from from work here, but. Let's get into some of the work stuff. Let's talk about the Miami Marlins. Um, As we stand right now at the time of this conversation, we're speaking on Wednesday morning before the Marlins close out their series against the Nationals. This episode will debut on Thursday morning, so one game to happen. 17 and 19 at the moment. Let's hope they're 18 and 19 when folks are listening to this. But there are some individuals worth highlighting, but I would just love your thoughts before we get into those individuals on, on what you've seen so far from this club as we approach sort of the quarter mark of this season and they're playing about 500 ball. Well, one of the things I've seen is, is an extension of Don Mattingly, how he, he keeps these guys, uh, they're never going to quit. And yep. uh, regardless of the score early on, and that's the main thing that stands out to me. Then, of course, the, the individual uh, accomplishments to this point. Now you talked about when this is going to air. I just finished doing uh, some work for the game tonight. Of course, Pablo Lopez is pitching yep. Wednesday night, and uh, hopefully uh, he has a good game and and everything goes well. But with him, with the uh, Sandy Alcantara, it looks as if Trevor Rogers is starting to put things together and throw yep. the ball better. Uh, so there are a lot of teams 
in Major League Baseball that would love to have those three guys uh, at the top of their rotation. Uh, it was unfortunate that Luzardo uh, is on the IL, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem too serious. So hopefully he'll be back because he was throwing the ball well. He was. And then offensively, uh, Jazz Chisholm has been been the guy. Yep. Uh, he's done a little bit of everything, uh, triples, stolen bases, home runs, uh, driving in runs. And gradually, now Aguilar, Garcia, and Soler, starting they're starting to come along. And that's that's what you hope for. Uh, it didn't start out that way, unfortunately. And there was a, a losing streak. Uh, there was a nice winning streak. Mm-hmm. But hopefully those big bats will uh, start getting a little more steady. Yeah, I mean, to be in a position where you're 500 at the moment or, or right around 500, considering those three guys, right, the two big free agent acquisitions haven't, you know, they're starting to heat up now. It, it's been nice, actually, even with Soler hitting the homers, it's been nice to see Avi Garcia's approach start to sort of change. And, and he's been getting on base a lot more, which has been nice, hitting the ball hard. But to be where they're at, considering those guys haven't really done much. But you brought him up, Jazz Chisholm Jr. Uh, at this point, you know, batting average. OPS, steals, second in homers on the team. He's leading in all of these offensive categories, and he's just 24 years old. So what do you see Jazz's sort of ceiling looking like as a ball player? And are there any sort of particular players from past years that you've covered that Jazz reminds you of at all? Well, first of all, I I heard about Jazz from a a good friend of mine. One of my good friends has been an assistant uh, to the GM with the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks for quite a while, Craig Shipley. Okay. Okay. He's very well respected in the in the scouting and and GM field. And he was the first one who told me about Jazz. And then when the Marlins acquired him, of course, he was the first guy he called. <laughs> and uh, we talked about him. He said, you're going to love this guy. Uh, he, he's got a little growth uh, in him left, and he needs to do that. And I think that's what we'll see sure. uh, from Jazz as he matures and learns and and I think we've seen a little bit, and I talked about it last uh, oh, a couple nights ago on a broadcast, how mm-hmm. he's been consistent, his April numbers, his May numbers, and that's all Jazz needs to do, stay consistent. Sometimes he gets a little pull happy yeah. and thinks about home runs, but other than that, uh, he's been fairly steady uh, defensively, mm-hmm. and I think it's great that he has alongside of him, he has Miguel Rojas, so that helps too. But I think just the maturity – uh, in him as he grows as a as a player, and I'm not sure right now where where his best spot is in the lineup. I'm not quite sure. Probably at the top uh, because he gives you that speed. Yeah, he's been he's been great in that leadoff spot. Obviously, we saw him batting sixth earlier in the year, which also felt like a decent spot for him to drive in some runs. Um, so no matter where he's been in the order, he's been productive and and certainly seems to have all of the tools, which is always exciting to watch when you have a player who can not only hit a homer one night, but then also steal a couple of bases. And that's that's just exciting baseball, which is fun. I'm excited to see it in person tonight myself once again. But going back to those pitchers as well, you know, you brought up Sandy and Pablo. Um, Trevor Rogers is getting back. On, on track here, which has been nice to see after sort of struggling at the beginning. We'll get into that in a second. But Sandy and Pablo have been, I mean, lights out for this team. Sandy is such a joy to watch because he's a throwback, right? Adam Wainwright, Doc Holliday, Chris Carpenter, that workhorse type, which has been so fun. And Pablo and his ability to mix locations and speeds this season has been so fun to watch. So these two guys are, are out of this world great. What makes each of them individually special? Well, I think as far as starting with Sandy, I think he all of a sudden has realized 
Uh, and I think the extension, the contract extension helped uh, in this fashion. But I think he's realized that he is the ace. He's yep. the number one. He takes that on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, he takes responsibility for that. Uh, as a matter of fact, the other night when he had the struggles early on through 43 pitches, the first uh, two innings, yeah. and then ended up retiring 20 in a row, he was at 100 pitches. When he came out of the game, he walked down the dugout. He walked down the other end. He didn't want Mattingly to see him or touch yep, he him. He was but, like hiding. <laughs> but uh, Donnie, you know, they they wanted to get him out mainly because the Marlins had added on some more runs and it yeah. became a more comfortable lead. I think had the lead stayed the same, I think he would have gone back out there. So he's taking that on his shoulders. That's important. Mm-hmm. And with Pablo, Pablo's a very intelligent young man, extremely intelligent. Uh, uh, he had actually asked, uh, I, I think this is a great story. He actually asked... Uh, our producer came up one day and I think he, he walked up either to Kelly or to Jessica. And he said, what can I do to be better at my interviews? And here's a guy who's that's pretty amazing. good at his interviews. He's great at interviews. And, and I mean, that's the way he thinks. And I think he's, he's come up with this unbelievable change up. He, he struck huh. out 11 last time out the nine on changeups. But I, I also see him, if the changeup isn't working, he also has a slider to go along with that, and he's got a good enough fastball. So, I mean, you look at these two guys, and these two guys, they're both aces. Yep. Trevor Rogers could be an ace, and who knows down the road about uh, Jesus Luzardo. For real. I mean, it, it. that's what's so exciting about this rotation is you do have two top-line starters, period. Already, right? Those go. Those guys are there, and the biggest thing—it's kind of like you mentioned—but both of them pitching with confidence, right? I think yeah. with Sandy, like so much of of the initial hurdles in his career was understanding. No, man, when you go out there, nobody's going to hit you if you're throwing at your best. Like it, you are that good, and and sort of having that understanding now is huge. And someone who has influenced that from the very beginning here is Mel Stottlemyre Jr., who mm-hmm. I think is totally invaluable. Um, I think that that. It's almost impossible to understand exactly how much value he brings to this starting rotation, to these players. And look, I I saw him the other day before the game just chatting for 15, 20 minutes with Jesus Lazardo. This is before he went on the IL. And clearly, these are just the types of conversations that help these pitchers grow. How often do you get to talk to to Mel Stottlemyre Jr. about what he does with these guys? And how impressed are you? with his ability to seemingly get the most out of every single pitcher that comes through here? Well, first of all, you, you're going to get me to rant a little bit. Do uh, it, please. Uh, because Do it. <laughs> because, um, because the Marlins are where they are in the standings right now, Yeah. because they're up against Philly, the Mets, the Braves, all these teams, because the Marlins don't get a lot of attention, uh, I always get upset when I hear people talk about starting pitchers, this guy, this guy. There's never a mention of Alcantara or Pablo Lopez. Nobody talks about Mel Stottlemyre Jr. and the job he does. You hear about all these oh. other pitching coaches. So there's my little rant, and it upsets <laughs> me. But I think, hey, all you got to do, and this is bottom line, if you win, if you get into postseason, and now all of a sudden you become nationally exposed, Mm-hmm. then things start to fall into place a little bit better. No, that's a good point. It's a good point that, that uh, you know, we saw it slightly in 2020 in that strange season where the Marlins made the playoffs. Yeah. There was the credit to the starting rotation and all of that. But now a couple years later, as we've seen these guys grow more and more and more, it, it's only 
showing the type of impact that Mel Stoudermeyer Jr. can have. Um, I do want to talk to you about sort of pitching in general and and almost like the coddling of arms because I'm a bit mm-hmm. I'm a bit old school myself in regard to this. I'm someone who believes that honestly the way that we sort of baby arms now causes more injuries not less Uh, i think if you throw every single day that's something that builds up your arm and i was cracking up the other night uh i don't know how much you paid attention to it uh when jim leland was in the booth with paul and gabby (laughs) and he was going on and on and on about the way that we handle pitching now and was bringing up verlander and scherzer from his days in detroit but I would love your thoughts on the way that sort of pitching has evolved and now the mixing and matching of, of bullpens as opposed to the, you know, the standard workhorse like I was just sort of talking about with Sandy. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly an old school, new school thing. And, yeah. and you're going to get everybody in, in my generation talking about it. When I when I first signed with the Dodgers, my first year was in uh, uh, Santa Barbara in the California mm-hmm. League. And one of my teammates was Don Sutton. And yeah. Don Sutton was uh, he was 19 at the time and he was eight and one like in june and i think of his 11 or 12 starts 10 of them were complete games Mm. they moved moved him up to double a he won 15 games there his first year in pro ball he threw 250 innings and had like 20 25 complete games so that's the way pitchers start pitchers back then their job was to go nine innings that's Mm -hmm. what they wanted to do Mm -hmm. it's not like that anymore and I don't see it making any improvement, and there's still as many arm injuries, uh, if not more. Yeah. Uh, the the problem now is that minor league guys, as they're coming up in the organization, I follow uh, Max Meyer and the jobs that he does, the, the mm-hmm. other pitchers, they're not allowed to go much more past five innings either. Nope. So then when they get to the major leagues, why do we expect them to go more than five? <laughs> exactly. We, we shouldn't. So it's I, – I the other day during the uh, alumni weekend – uh, when uh, they celebrated the 97 championship team, uh-huh. uh, Levon Hernandez was on, uh, it was either on radio or TV. He had the greatest analogy because Levon was a guy who wanted to go nine innings all oh, the yeah. time. He said, if you're going to go run a marathon, you don't go out and run two miles every so often. You you have to build up. You have yep. to run like 15 miles, 18 miles, and then you can go long. I used to see guys like... Uh, Steve Carlton and Jim Cott. In between starts, they would throw. Uh, Steve Carlton used to to throw long toss from yep. left field to right field after a complete game the night before. That, really? So they would just build up their arm. That's how they did it. Yep. It's a much different approach. Uh, it's not going to change. I some I, for whatever. Maybe it's the the romantic in me. I feel it may go back to that someday. Cyclically. Yeah. But uh, it's it's not going to happen soon because that's the way the young pitchers are are. I don't want to say coddled. It's not their fault. <laughs> it's just the way they're brought up. Sure. Yeah. Well, hey, look, I. Um... Hey, young kids are brought up differently than we were back. Yeah, you know, right? I was anyway sure. when I was a little kid. Young kids now are brought up just in life. Yeah, you're right. Than they were. So things change. That's a good point. And, and it does evolve. I um I will say like I was someone who was sort of witnessing this change as I was like playing travel ball as a kid. And I was someone who was like, all right, I'm going to go out and throw as many pitches as it takes to throw a complete game. And was was good enough to go play showcase baseball, not good enough to actually get recruited. But I, in those showcase tournaments, what you saw was all that mattered was the radar gun 
and oh, all yeah. the best pitchers come out. Oh, don't throw. get me. So we could do a whole nother podcast on that stuff. Yeah. Come out and throw <laughs> two innings as hard as you can. And that's all that yeah. matters. And that's what gets and there's you going. No, there's no team play in no. the showcases. You None don't at all. have a guy. Let's see. I'm a, I'm a middle infielder. I'm not going to impress a scout if I give myself up and go the other way to move nope. a runner. You're not going to have that. You're going to try to see how many bombs you can hit, what your launch angle is, and how fast you can throw. That's what it's come to. Exactly. And that element of it is what then leads into what we're talking about in minor league baseball where, okay, guys, of course guys can't throw that much because they're not even pitching for their high school teams. They're only pitching for these showcase teams for a couple innings at a time. But not to, sorry, we got off on a whole little tangent here. This we is my digress. own fault. We, we yeah, digress. We digress. Yeah. We could, this is my own fault. <laughs> I, I knew that we would end up going down this rabbit hole. But all right. I, I do think something that's cool is obviously you're you're a former player who immediately ended up in the, in the broadcast booth. And I think that we often just assume that former players who can see the game can make great broadcasters. But we've seen over the years how difficult that can be. There's been so many guys that have sort of come and gone. I, I mean this as a as a huge compliment. I always thought that you were a catcher because of the way that you call the game. <laughs> and I think that you see the game in the way that so many great broadcasters who were catchers do. And 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 to me, I just kind of want to know, what do you view as your job when you're in the booth? What are your goals headed into each game? Well, first of all, one of my best friends was the late Gary Carter. I was going to bring Hall him up as my catcher. next so, question. So there's so. the catcher part. But uh, it's, it's really interesting, and I think this is why I have this feel, the, the way I started broadcasting. I had, the last couple of years that I was a player, I had sent out uh, letters. This was well before emails and all that. And okay. I'd sent letters to uh, all the major league clubs, just to different people. There were different organizations where I might have known a GM, I might have known a guy in this department, just saying that uh, my career – someday would wind down. And when it did, I really had an interest in broadcasting. Okay. So when it did, uh, I got released in Montreal. I was playing with the Expos and I got released. They needed to make room for a, a right-handed hitter on the, the postseason roster. But John McHale, the uh, general manager, knew that I was interested in broadcasting. So the, 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 the worst story about it is I was taking batting practice. My group, my group of four or five guys, and all of a sudden, I get called off the field by uh, John McHale. And I had like five more swings left. I had, I had like one more round. So I got cheated out of my last five swings uh, of VP. No. But anyway, so I, I go in the dugout, and I'm sitting between John McHale and Dick Williams, who was the manager. Right. And they tell me that they're going to release me. Uh, but the, the next thing that John said, he said, if you'd like uh, – Dave Van Horn was doing radio and TV with the Expos at that time with, with Duke Snyder. And they didn't televise that many games back then. But when Dave and Duke went over to television, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Roos who did the radio mm -hmm. by himself. So Mr. McHale said, if you'd like, uh, you can stay with us the rest of the season and help out on the radio. So I thought about it. I thought about it. And uh, one thing led to another. And I, and I said, sure. So that was a Sunday. Well, Wednesday, I worked a game on the radio. I did the pregame interview. I always remember I interviewed Chris Spire, uh, the shortstop. Wow. And uh, so I, I was out of baseball for Monday and Tuesday, but I was preparing for the Wednesday broadcast. But what I did. That's amazing. This, <laughs> this, is, what, this is what a lot of, uh, I think, uh, a lot of young uh, guys who get out of the game and want to get into broadcasting, I, I don't think they put in 
this kind of effort. What I did, I knew at that time, I wasn't a superstar player by any means. I did not have a huge name. And so I needed to become a broadcaster instead of an ex player who did color. So I used to get a tape player and on the games that I didn't work, uh, I would sit up in an empty booth at uh, Olympic stadium. I would practice doing play by play because I also told myself if I'm going to get jobs, if I can do play by play and color, that might help. So uh, I I just approached it that way. Uh, As it turned out, I ended up working uh, in Montreal for five years. I ended up doing some television with uh, Kenny Singleton. Then I got hired in New York to do radio for two years where I did some play by play, Mm -hmm. uh, did three innings a game for, uh, for the Yankees. So uh, I, I progressed that way and, I just wanted to learn to become a broadcaster and and put in the effort. And I, and I feel I put in the effort just the way I did when I played. Uh, and to, to put it simply, when, when someone watches a game, if I'm involved as a broadcaster and they're watching that game, I feel it's been a successful broadcast if, number one, they've learned something during the course of the telecast, and number two, they've had a couple of chuckles. <laughs> But man, Tommy, that's exactly what comes across in all of your broadcasts. Because, I, and I'll tell you from watching you since the time I was young, I was constantly learning about baseball through your analysis and was getting to enjoy those laughs with you and Rich Waltz really back in the day. <laughs> it's so cool to hear that that there was that dedication. And, and my goodness, to only have had to be out of baseball for two days. I, <laughs> the idea that you were interviewing a guy who was your teammate two days before is just right. unbelievable that's to right. me. That's so cool. I. You just brought him up. He was literally my next question. So I think I've brought this up to you. Uh, you and I did an, an, an interview where Craig Mish primarily uh, conducted the interview a couple years ago on Swings and Mishes. I'm his his producer there. And I brought up to you, actually, that Gary Carter's daughter, Christy, was my third grade teacher. Um, <laughs> and so she and I had a very close relationship. Um, we're still Facebook friends to this day. I'll probably message her after this interview and let her know we spoke. But... Gary Carter, um, a truly wonderful human being. Um, you just brought him up, made a huge impact here in the South Florida community as well. Um, would love to just give you the runway here to to wax poetic about one of your great friends, uh, Gary Carter. Well, just, yeah, terrific friend, a great person, a great man. And, uh, you know, we we played against each other for a little while when I was with Philadelphia and he came up with the Expos. And when you played against Gary, you didn't like him. <laughs> a little bit of a showboat. Uh, come on, it can, you can't be that happy all the time. Uh, and so you, you kind of felt that way. But then once we became teammates, uh, that was like, I think I got traded in 78, in the middle of 78 to, mm-hmm. uh, to Montreal. And, and so now you find out uh, a little differently about Gary Carter and uh, what he was as a player and certainly as, a, as an individual. But I'll tell you uh, a really interesting story. Uh, I was working in the uh, in the 90s. I was doing about 30 games with ESPN, and I was doing about a 75-game package with CBC and the Toronto Blue Jays. Okay. And so I think it was uh, after Gary had been, because remember, Gary and Jay Randolph were the original Marlins broadcasters mm-hmm. from, from 93 to 96. Correct. So it was sometime in 96, I'm up in Toronto and I get a call from Gary and he, and he goes, uh, Hey, you may want to get a hold of the guys down in, uh, in Miami 
at that time, I think it was Sports Channel. He okay. said, they're going to make some changes on the TV side, and maybe we could work together. Because oh. we had done some uh, games in the uh, old, uh, oh, what was the league with the old retired players? It was on a Sunshine Network. Gosh, um, I, <laughs> that, yeah. that might be anyway, before, might be a little a bit before old, my time. It was a bunch of old guys trying to play, <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't that fun to watch. But we had actually televised some of those games. So I worked with Gary. So he... He calls me. He's all excited. He goes, maybe we could work together. So I said, okay. So I, I made a few phone calls. I started to pursue things. And uh, as I got deeper into the uh, talks, I realized they were letting Gary go. Oh, oh. <laughs> so oh going, my oh, goodness wait gracious. Wait a minute here. Because what they wanted to do, the first few years of, of the franchise, Joe Angel and Dave O'Brien were extremely popular on radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jay and, and Gary did the TV. Well, they wanted to incorporate Joe and Dave on TV and bring in another analyst. So one thing led to another. And right. uh, it didn't make for a real friendly conversation on the golf course, <laughs> if, you know, a month or so after that. But uh, all was well. And I think I think it turned out OK. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I'm so glad I got to hear it. That's tremendous. Um, I, I You know. To be able to have those friendships in baseball that can lead you to those moments is just cool the way it all sort of works itself out. And you mentioned actually before that you had spent a little bit of time with the Yankees. During those years, I believe <laughs> that's the prime of Don Mattingly playing first Absolutely. base for the New York Yankees. And I think yeah. there are quite a few people in this listening audience, as crazy as this is about to sound for you, who only know Donnie Baseball, the manager. Uh, can you explain to the Marlins fans who are unaware just how great Don Mattingly, the baseball player, was. Uh, yeah, I think uh, when I saw, I don't know if you saw the documentary uh, that was that was done on uh, Donnie, Donnie Baseball. Mm-hmm. And after I watched it, I thought to myself, every player in that clubhouse that he manages should be made to watch that, to see the type of person, yes. not only the type of player, but the type of person that they play for. And I, I think everybody should watch it. it. He was he was tremendous. I mean, they had a good offensive for the Yankees at that time. They didn't win, but right. they had Danny Pasqua and Mike Pagliarulo and Dave Winfield, Ricky Henderson. Not too much pitching though. So, right. but it was fun. He he probably doesn't remember this, but uh, there were a few times when the team was on the road, and and I was still young enough, and I was still. My, my kids were uh, playing ball still in high school or college, so I still used to throw a lot of batting practice. And being left-handed, I used to do that with the team on the road if they took early batting practice. Okay. Uh, because you didn't have to get the TV face ready because you were on radio. It didn't <laughs> sure, matter. Sure, But uh, I remember throwing batting practice to him, and he, he liked it because he liked to hit off a left-hander once in a while, and it would keep him staying back, and it would yeah. help him that way. But. I mean, a tremendous guy. Fun to watch him. It's been great to have an association and relationship with him for a long time. You just brought up Ricky Henderson. Any specific <laughs> Ricky Henderson moments that stand out to you that you remember? I just, you say the name Ricky Henderson, and I have to ask. No, you, you know, I, I can't remember any specifics when he was with the Yankees. You just sure. remember all the, the Ricky Henderson stories. All the lore. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, yeah, just a, a great player. 
Right. Uh, no question watching him play. Well, and and so you moved on after that to go work for the Blue Jays, and mm-hmm. you covered the Blue Jays for back-to-back World Series victories. Yeah, 92-93. Um, 92-93, it's amazing. The 93 Game 6 homer from Joe Carter is, is one of the most iconic moments of the last 30 years of Major League Baseball. Do you have any sort of either favorite memories or, or people that stand out from, from covering those back-to-back World Series championships? Well, yeah, probably the first uh, person that comes to mind is Cito Gaston. The, the mm. manager, just a, a real class guy and, and did a great job with that ball club. Uh, John, I mean, it's a great player. De- yeah, Devon I mean, White, amazing who, team. Yeah, Devon White, who was part of the Marlins 97. But, right. uh, you know, Joe Carter, you mentioned him. John Olerud, Roberto Alomar, uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, so I think the amazing thing about that uh, walk-off home run with postseason – we weren't involved in television right? because the national TV people take over. So I came home. I was home, but I was doing a, an article uh, every day, a daily article for, I think, the Toronto Sun. One of the Toronto, I believe it was Toronto Sun newspaper. So I'd have to, I was watching all the games sure. and then filing in a report. So, yeah, I remember staying up and, uh, and watching that game. Incredible. That, that was a team, too, that the age of my sons mm-hmm. at that time, that's kind of their team. They they remember mm. all those guys. And so, How you know, cool you are when you're young and you grow up and you remember. Like, for me, I can. I was talking about it the, the other night on TV, the, the all-switch hitting Dodger infield. Because, well, I grew up in L.A. They had Wes Parker, uh, Jim Lefevre, Jim Gilliam at third, and Maury Wills at short. And so I can tell you all the all the Dodger players because that's the team I grew up with. Right. Well, it was always kind of interesting because my, my son's, Took to that team, obviously, because they were a, a really good team. Todd Stottlemyre, tremendous pitcher right, there on you those go. teams. So there's a, another connection. So you have Pat Henkin, uh, a terrific pitcher. They always made good deals. They brought in a Ricky Henderson. They brought in a David Cohn. Uh, they brought in Dave Stewart one time. So Pat Gillick, who was the GM, he always seemed to make the right moves. It's so cool to see those teams that that can stand out in that way. And it's we'll get to one of them who who was my team uh, in just a few moments. But I want to start here. Once you get to the Marlins in 1997, clearly you're a good luck charm. You're you're, you're calling back to back World Series with Toronto when you get there, and now you show up to the Marlins in '97 and they win a World Series this past weekend. Uh, I can only imagine the memories that that sort of drudged up for you and having the 1997 um, weekend and, and remembrance of the 25-year anniversary of that here this past weekend. So when we talk about the 1997 team, what stands out to you immediately when I say 1997 World Series champion Florida Marlins? Well, it's funny. You mentioned that with Toronto, and I thought of Cito Gass, and you mentioned that with, uh, with the Leland. Marlins, and I think of Jim Leland, yep. uh, what, what he brought. Uh, to to the ball club, the way they played in spring training, they had a great spring, and then and then some veteran players. You you knew when you had guys like Bobby Bonilla and Moise Salou that these guys were going to perform. Uh, I really enjoyed. They they added some veteran guys off the bench and in, in Jim Eisenreich yeah. and uh, John Cangelosi. So you have guys like that. Uh, you're going to sustain. I got to tell you an Al my Al Leiter story though. Tell this me is, this is this is hilarious. I was when I was working because I got to backtrack my time, my three years doing Yankees baseball. Mm-hmm. Al got called up, so right. I saw saw Al make his uh, major league debut. So then I move on to Toronto. Who comes over to pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays? Al Leiter. Now I move down to uh, Florida. 
and who's pitching for That's the hilarious. Marlins? <laughs> Al Leiter. So I, I always remember that when he got traded to the Mets, I went up to him. I said, hey, Al, does that mean I'm going to the Mets? Too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys just following each other all through yeah. Major League Baseball. That's amazing. Well, and again, I, you know, it's so funny. We're sitting here doing all of this and each stop along the way. There's different connections to different pieces. And that's something that that I think baseball has in such a special and unique way is the way that the game you could t- I could bring up a player right now and we could do like, you know, they do like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We could do six degrees of the early 1900s. You could find a way to connect all the way back to the yeah. beginning of baseball with any of these guys. And that's that's what's so special about the sport is that storytelling. And so we can talk about the story here of the Marlins, which is they win in 97. Obviously, then from there, that team is sort of dismantled and it's built back up to 2003 and now you say those those 90s Blue Jays were the team of your sons for me the 2003 Marlins are my team right I was eight years old in 2003 uh I I there's one of my favorite pieces of content that exists is the commemorative World Series DVD I'm that level of baseball nerd that when I was an eight-year-old I was obsessing over Juan Pierre in this documentary (laughs) walking out to Yankee Stadium and rolling balls down the third baseline to see what the lip of the grass would be like if he laid down a bunt Uh, I was just obsessed with those teams and JP and Louie and the whole thing off the top of that order how much fun was that 2003 team and and you know it seems like that was even more of a miracle run than 97 was. So did you did you believe in that team once, you know, once they started to kind of go that direction and start winning some ball games? Yeah, well, if you remember, it didn't start off very well. No. And, and Jeff Torborg uh got fired. Yep. And that's when Jack McKeon came in. Yep. And uh you know, guys love playing for Jack. The thing about that team that just stands out to me is the unbelievable defense in the oh, infield I, Alex I, Gonzalez at shortstop bar none, by, bar none for me anyway Mike Lowell Alex Gonzalez Luis Castillo and Derek Lee that's the best defensive infield I've ever seen uh, so it's uh, it, that was when he had Pudge behind the plate it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah it's crazy when you think so, about it so that's that's what really carried that team and then you know of course Don Trell was exciting it's funny how in 97 and 03 have a few comparisons. Yes. You know, Levon came on the scene and really got things going. Dontrell got things going. That certainly helped out. So there there were some parallels. Well, and getting Niner at the deadline as well, right? Getting him yeah. back in 2003 was sort of similar to the moves that they made in 1997 to acquire players and and sort of go for that run. I mean, I obviously one of the guys who who was a part of that for the 90s uh for the 2003 team rather was Miguel Cabrera as well. Oh. Um, yeah. and, and to me, you know, Miguel Cabrera is, in my view, the greatest right-handed hitter that I've ever seen, um, other than maybe Mike Trout. Uh, but in, in terms of seeing a right-handed hitter in person for my age, Miguel Cabrera is just tremendous. He's now surpassed 3,000 hits. In your view, wh- where do you put Miguel Cabrera in, in sort of the lore of Major League Baseball, and how, how much of a joy was it to watch him hit? Well, it was, I mean, when he came up, he was only 20 and and you saw this guy and you saw this guy take the approach that he had, uh, able to hit the ball the other way and then turn on a pitch inside. Uh, it didn't matter where it was. I'm going to go. I have to look at my phone because I have to, I have to give you this, this answer that, uh, that Jim Leland gave me the other day about Miguel Cabrera, who he had 
who he had in Detroit. This was his description right. of, of Miggy as a player. He plays hard. He plays hurt. He's humble. And he plays happy. Oh, man. That is such a wonderful and quick description. But like, yeah, hard, dis- hurt, humble and happy. It describes exactly the guy that that we got to see every single day play for the Miami yeah. Marlins or, or the Florida Marlins at the time. It was like, I mean, to to be able to witness I, one of my favorite memories is him even hitting, you know, the 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 intentional walk in Baltimore where he in hit Baltimore. the ball outside of the strike zone and hit the single up the middle to score Hanley. It was just that type of player is so so rare to come by, and and we were so lucky to have witnessed him for as long as we did. When I bring up Miguel Cabrera, I think of, of of all the teams that existed also after 2003. So in the years that that sort of happened after the World Series, were there any sort of favorite groups that you covered or any particular <laughs> yeah. players that, that stand out like that? Yeah, there was the, you know, the the Mike Jacobs, Dan Uglis, yeah. Cody, Cody Ross. Uh, the, that group was a, a fun group to follow. I love those they, guys. They, play, they played hard. They, they, they came out there every day. Uh, and, and then the one year... Who was it? Uh, oh, he came short uh, uh, at third base, not getting his 30th home run. The Marlins would have had three or all four oh, infielders with 30 uh, home runs. It wasn't Jorge Cantu, was it? Yeah, it was Cantu. There Jorge Cantu, Jorge all Cantu right. And, yes. uh, yeah, so, so that's what happens. But those guys were fun. Those guys were fun to watch. And, they were. And, you know, we had fun with Dan Ugla. And and uh, Jake was was uh, it's just that that group comes to my mind right away. Cody Ross, one one of our favorites, and and oddly enough, is uh, related to yeah. Trevor Rogers. See, there we How go. More 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 sort of uh, <laughs> tying everything through in the history of these franchises. I you know Cody Ross is one of those guys who I think forever for Marlins fans will be a fan favorite. Like he's one of those dudes who yeah. just forever is and came up clutch time after time. I remember on those same teams that you bring up, I remember the uh, the little Donnie Murphy run. You remember that when he came yeah, up yeah. and hit a couple walk Donnie bleeping Murphy. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yes, all right. I got Tommy to say it. That's incredible. All right, so uh, b- before we wrap up here, before we wrap up here, I do want, what, what are your expectations, I guess, through the rest of this season for the Marlins? They're playing about 500 ball right now. Um, it's easy to see this going sort of either direction. You know, if this team doesn't start to hit, you could see how how some of these things that have broken the right way could could be tougher to keep going. But also, you know, as we mentioned before, they haven't really put everything together, and yet they're hanging right here around 500 in second place in the NL East. So what are your thoughts on on where this can go the rest of the way for Miami? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, the fact that they, they really haven't played their best baseball and they're just under 500. I think what you have to do when you you start this way, you have to get to 500. Number mm-hmm. one, get there, and then see where that takes you. But I agree. If if the guys who they brought in to hit, uh, to drive in runs, Jorge Soler, uh, Visayel Garcia, guys like that, if they if they just kind of stay status quo, they're both starting to pick things up. By the way, though, now mm-hmm. so hopefully that'll continue. If that continues. If the pitching continues the way it is, the thing about pitching with an Alcantara and a Lopez and a Trevor Rogers, you should, doesn't always happen because right. we've seen a little bit of it, but you should stay away from any really long losing streaks. Right. So you should mix in some wins here and there. So then you put together a couple win streaks and all of a sudden you're four, five, six games over. But when you're dealing with, with the Braves, Phillies have played good. They, they played good out in L.A., and then you have the Mets who are on top of uh, everybody right now. 
it's amazing that the Marlins don't see the Mets till June, right? Sometime in in kind of late June, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of nuts, but it'll be a big series. And I think a, a good test for the Marlins this weekend against the Braves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and there's the old adage, you're only as good as your next day's starting pitcher. And luckily for the Marlins, most days, that's really good. <laughs> you know, yeah, whoever yeah. their next starting pitcher is, is really good. Tommy Hutton, you can watch him uh, all week long. He's on the broadcast right now uh, in, in the booth with Paul Severino. Uh, really, really enjoying listening to those games, uh, Tommy. Hey, by the way, by the yeah, way, my, please. Hat, my hat's off to Paul who has to deal with a whole bunch of us. I mean, uh, JP, Gabby, pretty soon uh, Jeff Nelson's going to come in the booth with him for a few games. Uh, Rod Allen's going to do some games. So he's got five guys to deal with. And uh, from a play-by-play standpoint and, you know, just getting a feel and a rhythm, that's not all that easy. So my hat's off to uh, Paul. I know he's enjoying it, including you, Mr. Tommy Hutton. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. It was an absolute joy for me. Oh, Jeremy, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places.